Hi, everyone. Welcome to the MSX podcast, a show about a broad range of topics in medicine, from education to exploring research and contemplating future directions for the field. In each episode, we speak with leaders in the field to learn from their insight and expertise. This episode, we have Dr. Devin Mann, who's an internal medicine physician at NYU Langone, an informatics and implementation science researcher, and a digital health innovator. He's the director of the Healthcare Innovations Bridging Research Informatics and Design Lab at NYU, otherwise known as the Hybrid Lab, where he combines research, informatics, and design to build, implement, and disseminate new digital tools that can improve the delivery and experience of healthcare. Welcome, Dr. Mann. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. We want to start off by talking about you know, your early ambitions to enter a career in medicine. Sure. My story is probably not that different than lots. I mean, I definitely um, had some influential people along the way, my pediatrician in particular, uh, who I, uh, I think in first grade drew like a, a hero picture of, and he had it hanging in his pediatrician's wall for my entire childhood. So um, there was definitely that. Um, but uh, I uh, entered medical school mostly because I thought medicine was interesting uh, and it looked like it would be challenging and I liked interesting challenges. Um, and in medical school, which I did at NYU as well, um, you know, I liked a lot of things. Uh, and so I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. Uh, toward the end of medical school, I had done a rotation in rural Colorado one summer, really enjoyed sort of primary care in the community. Um, you know, taking care of ranchers, wounds, and things like that. Um, and so I thought I would do much more of a family medicine-oriented career. Um, but I did live in New York City, Manhattan, which had very limited opportunities for family medicine. So the closest thing to that was primary care. Um, and I'm dating myself, but at that time, primary care was all the rage. Um, this was uh, uh, the late, the end of the 90s, early 2000s. And so it seemed... Uh, like a rewarding path to go. So I, I, I jumped into it um, and did a primary care residency at NYU. Uh, learned a lot about taking care of people in diverse settings um, and lots of different types of patients, which I loved. I liked the variety of general internal medicine. I think that's usually what attracts people to general medicine is, you know, you kind of like doing lots of things, the holistic picture of the patients, the relationships over time. Um uh, if any of your listeners are medical students, they're probably grappling with those questions right now of like, you know, how important is continuity versus, uh, let's say, you know, emergency medicine, which is, you know, lots more kind of intensity up front, but then you don't always know what happens down the road um, or surgery where it's really less about the relationship and more about the technical skills, or at least from a primary care perspective, it is. Maybe the surgeons would disagree. Um Anyway, so I was heading down that path, um, but I got exposure during residency um, to research, and I really enjoyed that as well. Um, I spent my chief residency year doing research with an epidemiologist um, and really got passionate about, you know, how data and how sort of um, publishing research might change the practice of medicine. That seemed exciting to not only be practicing my skills, but also sort of leading the charge on better ways to do that. Evidence-based medicine was also very in vogue at the time. And people were really excited about how to make evidence-based medicine um, sort of go everywhere. Um, so I did a research fellowship post -res chief residency up at, uh, at uh, Cornell School of Medicine um, on the Upper East Side. 
and spent a couple of years doing research, uh, recruiting, learning how to recruit patients, how to do, you know, detailed analyses, study designs, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and that prepared me for an academic career, um, which is one of the choices, you know, uh, you have, uh, you, you know, obviously go into private practice, whether it be, you know, a solo shop or a multi-specialty practice, lots of options. But I chose an academic career. Um, and then uh, during that trajectory, sort of, uh, this was now the late knots, uh, there was a major transformation, which was our entire hospital got electro electronified. Um, they installed the first EHR. I'd been writing paper notes my first couple of days on the job. And then a few months later, all that went away. Um, and... Um, and so I sort of leaned into it and got very involved with uh, electronic health records and how they were going to affect healthcare. And that sort of fast forward, I don't know, 10, 15 years later, my whole research and um, operational leadership is all around digital health and uh, electronic health records and apps as medicine, all those kinds of cool buzzwords. So that's how I got from there to here. Curious to learn more about, you know, what weaknesses you kind of saw within that healthcare system while you were you know, a resident that sparked your initial interest in telehealth and like the digital transformation of healthcare in general? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, you know, I think when you're in training, you know, you see problems up close, right? Trainees, whether it be med students and particularly residency, you're, you're really the front line uh, and you really get to see, you know, what's, what's working, what's not. Um, during my residency, I was really uh, fascinated by the obesity epidemic, which was really getting attention at that time. Um, in fact, uh, me and a couple of co-residents set up the first um, weight loss clinic at Bellevue Hospital here in New York City. Um, and we were all volunteering, um, but we just didn't feel like we could do a lot. Um, you know, there weren't any good medications and lifestyle changes so hard. And it was the beginning of the dawning in my mind of how limited the impact of what you can do in a 15-minute office visit is because multiply ultimately people spend all of their time not in your office. Um, and that really, that, that once you start to view sort of healthcare that way, that like, you know, yes, you have these touch points, but ultimately you need to change everything that happens outside of the office much more than what's easier to control, which is what happens in the office. And that really is the beginning of the journey. Once you start to recognize that you understand technology's, you know, potential role in connecting your ability to, both understand what's going on in people's lives and have impact on them. Whether it be, hey, you don't have to commute uh, three hours to come in for a blood pressure check, or it's, you know, I can electronically prescribe, right? So you don't have to come in and pick up a prescription. I know people might find that crazy, but that's what people used to have to do, right? Um, or um, it might be, you know, sensors and things in people's homes. So we know much, much more so they don't have to come to the hospital or, come into my office each week, right? So these things are very um, disruptive for lack of a better word. Uh, and, and it all starts there once you recognize, I need to find a way to take care of people when they're not in front of me. That's when technology gets exciting. And so after you kind of had this realization, what were some of the first problems you chose to, to tackle? Yeah, well, then I really relied on my primary care training. So I really have focus mostly on the kinds of problems that I deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. So one of the first projects we did when I, when this, uh, I was at Boston University at the time was we built um, an app to help patients adhere to the DASH diet, which is a, the evidence-based diet uh, for lowering blood pressure. So you can see all the connections, evidence-based medicine, primary care, 
and now technology. So we built this app um, and we tested on a bunch of patients and it, and it helped a bit, um, but I learned both the, the promise and the challenges of technology. Because even though the app, I think did a nice job of making it all available um, and in theory, easy to use for patients to change their diets and um, understand what the kind of steps were. Just like so many apps on the market today, most of them don't get used that much. And even if they do, they don't really deliver the results that many of the companies hope they will because there's so many friction points, right? Not talking about downloading the app in terms of, you know, what it takes to log in to engage regularly, challenges of, you know, hey, my data plan this or that. Um, and then ultimately changing behaviors, you know, about diet um, or medication taking, things like that. You know, these are these are happening every minute of every day and as pervasive as apps are, um, ultimately they can't really change your behavior for you. Um, and so you started to really see the limits of what they could do and sort of that first generation of sort of digital health tools, digital therapeutics. Um, and, and that begot a lot of what we see today, which are people trying to get smarter around those things. They may be adding behavioral economic nudges to them, or they may be trying to put, um, make the workflows even easier to use, or maybe they're trying to connect them with another app that someone's already using. So can we think about how healthcare can be embedded into WhatsApp or into, uh, um, uh, Instagram or something like that? You know, people are trying to be creative about that because ultimately getting people to like sit during the day and be like, Hey, I want to open up. Dr. Mann's app right now, rather than do something fun and do some work on this app, you know, that's a tall order. Yeah. I think that's really interesting. Um, and I would love to learn more about like the, the mixture of like health and growth KPIs, because for a lot of these like social media apps, right. You're only looking at like daily active users, like how fast you're growing. And I'd imagine a lot of that is the same with these like telehealth platforms. But there has to be some, you know, mixture between like health KPIs, which is like these people are feeling better. And also, yeah, our app is growing really fast. What's like the mixture of metrics you guys think about when when designing these kinds of platforms? And it, it, it's a bit different for different um, developers or players in the in in the in the ecosystem, right? So I could speak for us first and then I can sort of extrapolate to people not like us. So as a healthcare provider, maybe as a researcher, um, although growth and scale are important because we want to develop things that people, lots of people will use, not just, you know, one or two people. We are somewhat constrained um, by the evidence, the linkage between the, the tool and the clinical outcome. It's just too far for us to stretch to literally, you know, build, develop and scale something we're not convinced will deliver clinical outcomes from, from like a medical perspective. So what that means is we often gravitate towards things that have clear evidence. Um, and that's where we'll put our energy into first, generally speaking. So for example, like our lab is leading a project that the outcomes and Bitsy works on this project, right? The outcomes are, uh, uh, process metrics, right? How much people are engaged, how much they're downloading, how much they're all that stuff. But that's because we know the app is clinically proven to deliver the clinical outcome. So getting our patients to use that thing, that's reasonable. The analogy is right, a blood pressure drug, right? We know blood pressure drug X leads to decline in blood pressure, which leads to decline in heart attacks. All that's been worked out. 
So now if we want to do another study of like, how do we get more people to take their blood pressure pills? We're not going to make sure that study's powered to prove heart attack reductions because that takes another 10 years, another, you know, 50,000 patients. That's okay. However, if there's just like a brand new medicine that people say, hey, this holy water medicine can cure cancer. Well, we're not going to just look for, you know, downloads of that app, right? We need to make sure there's established evidence. So that's a lot for the more therapeutic digital health. Now there's communications, digital health, right? Telemedicine, things like that. And in that case, I think we're, I mean, we were moving slowly down that road. The pandemic obviously accelerated us, but there it's sort of, um, there's a parody assumption that, well, telemedicine is similar enough to doing stuff in person. And we think we can do that in that, we think getting a lot of engagement in telemedicine is as good as you know seeing our patients a lot. And that's okay. Um, now there is research going on to still prove that, to make sure, are we really getting everything we need from telemedicine versus in-person medicine? Same with remote monitoring, right? We're doing a lot of remote monitoring in people's homes now under the assumption that home blood pressures and all that kind of stuff will still drive a lot of the same clinical outcomes that we've seen before. But we are validating that at the same time as well. We had more doubts about the connection. I think we would be slower to even drive those process metrics like the business KPIs. Now, if I was in a startup company entering a space that was excited about the growth, I think those calculations are a little bit different, right? They, they literally don't have the ability to run the big clinical trials and still get all the investing they need. They need to get the investors up front. So they often do race a little bit towards those business metrics. Um, but it's different. It's challenging for healthcare startups. And it is one of the challenges I have, whereas the general like non-healthcare community will be pretty tolerant of outcomes in some way, because there aren't really right. You know, how many times you log into Instagram is good enough. That's all they really care about, but there is a tension in the digital healthcare startup, you know, or I shouldn't just start just in the vendor community of, of delivering those outcomes and tying into them. And so it, it, there is a gray area that, there where it's, you know, yeah, you want to grow your customer base, um, but you can't get too far from the clinical realities because otherwise when, when you've grown some base, uh, usually eventually you need to come to the providers, the doctors, and they're, they're skeptical consumers. So they're not going to just do it because you have lots of people doing it. They're going to be like, well, what is the connection to the, the, the clinical outcomes? So it's a, I think it's a fine line that a lot of those vendors have to walk um, and they don't have the, the kind of same perspective as, as a healthcare delivery system would have. Yeah, no, that's interesting. Cause I think that the incentives are pretty different in a, in a startup environment where you're trying to raise like venture capital. Um, and so you want to show that you're just growing at that like hockey stick kind of growth. So your, your incentive is not to really focus too much on the clinical trial type aspect. Your incentive is like, you know, I, I care about my, year over year growth. I care about my daily active users. I care about how many drugs we're pushing, that, that kind of stuff. So, you know, is that the main reason why you build these kinds of products in a, in an academic environment or uh, I guess you going out and, and working with startups? Yeah, that's a great question. And often we, we talk about that internally a lot. Like what is, what is our reason for existence? Like we have our operational like deployment IT infrastructure. So we need to implement like our EHR system, maybe uh, our customer relation management system, our CRM, we do those things. But if we want to 
develop new stuff? Should we just look for a new company and bring them into our ecosystem or develop something? And usually sort of the guiding principle for us is the concept of like proof of principle. Um, you know, uh, I like the work of David Moore at, uh, in Chicago. He, he writes a lot about this. Um, but the concept being that, you know, we try to prove a principle, like a scientific principle for the digital health, right? So it's like, is deploying this technology that we've developed substantially changing the way we want to deliver care that patients are, you know, accruing outcomes? If so, then we've proven that principle. Then we can think about the best way of disseminating that, whether that be partnering with a vendor to scale it up or embedding it into our healthcare delivery system at scale. There's lots of ways of doing that. But because like you were talking about as a healthcare, as a scientist, as a physician, as a healthcare delivery system, we, we want to scale up. We want to deliver things that we think are, are grounded in, in the evidence. And so there is a need for, in my mind, academic organizations to, to prove the principles of, of digital health. Cause it's not the same as social media itself or consumer, you know, uh, products they're, they're actually different things because the outcomes and the, and, and the constraints are different yeah and could, for a moment could you just tell us what exactly uh, you guys are doing at the hybrid lab and uh, where you guys are moving forward right now yeah absolutely so yeah so the hybrid lab um, is a research group inside our the part the department of population health at NYU Langone um, and the Grossman School of Medicine and our work uh, is a portfolio of work funded by the NIH and other federal agencies, really focused on well, broadly the umbrella, we call it applied digital health. But ultimately that means partnering with operational leadership to, to study new ways of delivering healthcare with digital technologies and trying to prove those principles that these things are better than the status quo. We have three focus areas right now, although they do evolve over time. Um, those three buckets are advanced clinical decision support, meaning using the electronic health record and adding new things onto it, plugins to it, to both support physicians in particular, uh, other healthcare uh, providers uh, and patients to kind of get better care. So uh, we've built nudges, behavioral economic nudges into our EHR. Um, we build integrated like web apps into it so that let's say I need to prescribe uh, lung cancer screening, for example, that we have a project right now where then there'll be a integrated application that walks the physician and the patient through a shared decision-making conversation to make sure that that's the right decision to do that, uh, that imaging test. So that's one bucket um, with lots of interesting projects in there. Um, another bucket is what we call digital communications, for lack of a better word, using text messaging, uh, other forms of messaging, um, and all the other pieces you can add on to that. So making those different digital communications smarter with machine learning or AI tools to advance the ability to connect care between clinicians and patients and help them, you know, guide them on the path. So an example um, is where we, where our patients are prescribed a, a digital uh, diabetes prevention app from a vendor that we work with. We then deploy this um, system that essentially nudges those patients using text messaging and other tools to sort of keep them on the path. Um, there was a phrase uh, popularized by um, David Ash's group down in Penn called automated hovering. Um, you know, sort of like a digital nag for better, or, for better or worse. 
something to help remind us this is the, the digital pathway we're supposed to be on and try to keep us on that path and deploying lots of digital tools to support people in that path. So that's another area of active research. And the third is really around what in the medical side we call remote patient monitoring um, or home monitoring, but essentially capturing data from outside the walls of the office and figuring out how to bring that data in in a manageable, sensical way so that the team can help people manage their care by coming in less and manage it better. Um, our early use cases have been are focused on uh, blood pressure management and diabetes management. Um, and so we have a fair amount of work in that space going on right now. Um, and, um, and I think that's going to be a, a big growth area as well for research because, you know, there's a lot to be figured out about how to, to use these technologies to really drive care forward and not just overwhelm people with data that's, you know, just clouding the picture rather than making it clear what to do next. A big problem that a lot of these startups have is that they can't like integrate with the clinical workflow. And it seems like you guys are trying to do that and you have a a very strong leg up from those startups because you actually are affiliated with the the hospital. Yeah, no, you hit the nail on the head with that. I mean, the reality is integration's always been a challenge. There's been movement on the national level, right, with standards like fire and CDS hooks and things like that. And we we leverage those standards because it makes our job easier, but that's only part of the, the way, right? Even with those standards, you still need to intimately know the workflow at the, at the host organization because everyone customizes the tools so much. And there's like always a, there's a, it's a socio-technical question. It's not a technical question alone. So when it's socio-technical, you have to really understand like the, the human computer interaction side of things. And you need access to do that. You need to like really know it. Um, and that is our, that's our competitive advantage, like in the lean business canvas, like that, that's our competitive advantage. So we do, you're absolutely right. And we actually focus on work where that's in the forefront, right? I don't, I never want to get into a horse race with a, with a digital startup to like just develop stuff. They have, they can hire, they have venture capital and they can hire a hundred people to do it better. So I'll, I'd rather use them, like use a judo move, use their momentum in that way. But then ultimately when it's time to really get deep into getting embedded into clinical workflows, that's where we like to do our research and, and, and use our, our leverage. I don't know. I don't like, it might tell me if I'm wrong or if I'm missing something, but, um, it seems to me that there's a like conception that in healthcare, that's where like the most stagnant software prevails, but the problems seem to be like the biggest. There are, you know, there's immense ways to think about this. Like the, the stack is ginormous, you know, what, what's happening? Why is this stagnant software well, prevailing? Yeah, sure. Um... You know, and I'm probably not even the most qualified to answer this because uh, there are like even smarter stack people in healthcare. Um, but here's what I'll say, which is, you know, your intuition's not wrong. It's not just intuition. Like everyone says that, right? We have the most antiquated, fragmented technology of all the major industries. And it's true to some degree. Um, part of that is by design. Healthcare is conservative, but we probably want it to be to some degree, right? Because, you know, making mistakes cost lives, as people would say. Uh, but there, there's truth there, right? You know, um, so that's one 
reality. Two is the profit margins are very slim. So these organizations don't have a lot to burn. You know, they're talking about one, 2% profit margins in most of these healthcare delivery organizations. So they don't have like, you know, a lot of room to kind of fail immensely uh, and figure those things out. It's, it's not the same as it is in fintech and places like that. Three, you know, and you'll see a lot of people write about this. So I'm, everything I'm saying is someone else has said probably smarter somewhere else. Um, but, you know, it's, uh, uh, disaggregated the kind of the payment cycle, right? So the the consumers do not pay the delivery people, right? They pay a third party who then negotiates with the delivery people, right? So you have insurance who then negotiates with your provider who delivers a service to me, but you pay the insurance, right? And so that three card money creates a level of disconnect in the, the classic feedback between like consumer and 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 the product provider um, that people at least ascribe a lot of that problem to. So that fragments the technology solutions to some degree, right? Like I'm on a health like healthcare provider is on one system, the payer's on a different system, the patient maybe even on a third system, right? And plus they are allowed to then go to multiple providers. Then it gets even more complex, right? Because the payer relationship, so you pay one insurance, but it may be connected to your job and this day and age, you may change jobs every few years. And then now you're switching payers every couple of years. So then their time horizon of what they're trying to develop products for gets very short, right? They don't necessarily want to invest in something that has benefits in 10 years since you're unlikely to be their client in 10 years, right? So these complexities are what lead to the fragmented system, the conservative nature um and the inability and, and ultimately the, you know and then everyone blames everything on the incentives which is not wrong right ultimately as providers you know providing care is what what incentivizes us as payers what incentivizes them is paying as little as possible and as patients what incentivizes you is your health and you're not thinking all that much about the cost of it at all um and so that's why people you know say that the system's so expensive and inefficient at, at the same time so I wish, you know, so I think the stack thing you're talking about ultimately is a reflection of those you know, realities or inefficiencies or absurdities, whatever perspective you want to take it from. That's why the stack is what it is. It's not like anything else. There's nothing fundamentally unimproved. Like, it's not like healthcare needs a stack that makes no sense. It has nothing to do with it. It's not like we couldn't develop something, you know, for it. We absolutely could. It just reflects those realities. Um, that is one of the reasons that an EHR vendor, let's say like Epic, which is the largest EHR vendor in the United States, um, or has the biggest market share of it. I think that's correct. Um, many people complain that it is technology is not the best, the most cutting edge, but what it does is address a lot of what we're talking about, which is it simplifies things. It reduces complexity. It creates cohesiveness in, from a healthcare provider perspective. It can, from a patient perspective, though, if you go to a couple of different organizations and you have different EHRs, and you have different portals, that can be lost. Um, from a payer perspective, they're not really like in that conversation, so they're not driving it. And so that's how we end up where we are, which is, you know, startups saying, hey, I want to like build a better EHR and a provider system saying like, that's nice, but that doesn't really help me, not only just incentive wise, but like just management wise, like, uh, you know, that the, the, the overhead, both financially and just like organizationally to switching is, 
insurmountable to some degree. Yeah. So um, you mentioned uh, all this work you've been doing, especially uh, you know in the telehealth space. Um, and as the head of the hybrid lab, you know I can assume you only have a certain amount of time uh, and energy and resources to devote to certain research ideas. And so I was wondering what are some of the trade-offs of pursuing one idea versus setting one aside or just like tabling it for now? Like, How do you choose what to pursue and what not to pursue? I, um, I consult a psychic <laughs> and they tell me what to do. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's a fair question. I wish I had a very concise answer. The reality is it's an integration of things. There's one is where there's funding that matters. Obviously research is not free. Um, and so we have to, to some degree go in that direction Two is as an applied digital health research group, rather than just like a pure ivory one, we are listening very closely to what the operational side of the house is. What do the departments and the specialties and the clinicians want and need where are their pain points so that drives us a lot actually and that i'm very happy to compromise on because pursuing things that i'm personally interested in seems sort of less important than trying to solve problems that people need solved um and then third is um sort of integrated with what the skills are we have in-house like what is our team good at uh, because ultimately um you know, you want to succeed and you can, even after those two criteria are checked, there's still several things you could work on. Um, but then you want to work on where you have great skills and where you have access to the people and the data and all those kinds of things. Um, so that's something like that. So like, for example, remote patient monitoring, which is a really active area of research, um, is because um, there, I think there will be funding, but that's less of an it actually in this case. It's operationally becoming very apparent after telehealth and, and the pandemic, it became very apparent like, oh, wow, we really need to, to figure this out. So we, there was a really strong incentive on that part. And then we had the skills, we had access to people. And there was a strong belief, honestly, in, in the lab that this is the future of medicine and we want to be a part of figuring it out. And, and that's really what drives us, for example, in that domain, because um, you want to work on things that you, know, you think are important. Simple answer that time. And so as we're wrapping up, what is one piece of advice to students uh, that may want to pursue a career that's similar to yours? Well, first, I would say, make sure you don't want to just practice clinical medicine, because ultimately you need lots of good doctors and uh, it's, it's very rewarding. I, I still love clinical care. Um, I do it a small percentage of my time. I debate whether that, you know, if I want to do more or less, it, it varies. Understanding though that I do want people to be um, realistic that, um, you know, you have to be very aware Like there's a lot of burnout, we know, in the physician uh, and not just physician nurses, everyone's being burned out a lot. So you have to be realistic about what you're getting yourself into. So that's my first piece of advice, you know, and the way to do that, shadow people, not just what you see in medical school, go out there, get into the, the doctor community, watch, you know, providers in the kinds of settings that you might work in practice and see if that attracts you. Now, if you decide to do something more of my space, then what I would say is, you know, just be open-minded, talk to a lot of people, you know, the conversation that we're having here is, is important. Like, I think we have a lot to learn in healthcare from other industries. So I would say be, you know, gregarious and, and sort of uh, talk to learn from everywhere because everything you said is true. Like we have a lot of challenges in healthcare and technology is 
a tool and part of the equation, but it's not a solution in and of itself. Um, and so I think it'll take a lot of creative thinking and um, learning from other industries. So that would be something I would say as well. And if you choose to get into medicine, but then really, you know, lean into, let's say a startup company, whatever, just remember that, like, I often say this to folks like who used to, who used to be doctors and are now in technology. It's like you, you, you lose touch with the, the challenges of actually delivering care real quick. Uh, so either try to stay connected uh, or, you know, lean on the advice of, of sort of real people doing the real work. Um, and I think there's a lot of, there's an insulated at, uh, kind of an insularity to some of these um, healthcare technology startups where they're not really connected to the front lines and they're not, so some of their products don't quite meet the needs. And, you know, classically in technology spaces, they call that, you know, the last mile, the final mile, right? We've developed all this stuff. We have this great technology and that, you know, it falls down that last mile and, you know, people joke about that, but ultimately that is the hardest mile. Um, and so you have to really embrace that. So if you're going to do this kind of work, you know, you can't shy away from it and be like, oh, we'll figure that out later. You got to kind of figure that out right from the front. All right. Well, thank you. And this has been the MSX podcast. All right, guys.